We're talking about what makes this course and what makes hermeneutics important. Let's take a look at the importance here. First of all, this whole area is important just for truth itself. We want to get at truth. That's our goal. That's our destination. That's what we want to cut straight to. Get to the truth. Now, we're informed in Scripture in several passages, Exodus 20, 22. This is a major issue today. Did God, in fact, speak? And did he speak in such a way that we have a record of what God said? That's an issue today. The majority of our culture denies that. Now, we believe that God did speak based on a few passages. These aren't the only ones, but these are probably the most clear passages. And in the slide there, this is Jebel Musa. This is the traditional site of Mount Sinai, where God spoke. And if God spoke, then that shapes everything. Because if God spoke, then it is extremely important to try to understand what he said. And that's what hermeneutics is all about. And let's read a couple of those passages. Let's read Exodus 20, 20, 22. When the Lord said to Moses... God speaking. And here's what he said. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Clear statement that God has spoken. God says that he has spoken. Moses records that God has spoken. And historically at Mount Sinai, God spoke. If God spoke, that has to be absolute truth. If that is absolute truth, and the scriptures claim to have a, be a record of that, then it is extremely important that we endeavor to understand what God said. And that's why this course is important. One of the Deuteronomy passages, Deuteronomy 5.24, reiterates, and I remember this is 40 years later, the Exodus 20, this is in the context of the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, where God delivered probably the most profound words in terms of culture and society that man has ever heard from Mount Sinai. Those two words are the foundation to any culture. Unfortunately, our culture doesn't allow you to put them on public property. So at Mount Sinai, God spoke, and God told Moses that he spoke, and they heard him. That's significant. Now, we believe that all of Scripture are what God spoke, not so much as directly as he did at Mount Sinai, but God spoke all the same. We'll talk about that. And that's what the Scriptures claim. Now, Deuteronomy 5.24, this is 40 years later to the second generation. This is after the first generation had died out and the second generation was going to follow through on what God had spoken concerning taking the land, Moses is reminded, you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice. God spoke, they heard it, Moses records it in Deuteronomy. 
We have heard his voice from the midst of the fire, and we have seen today that God speaks with men, and yet he lives. This is an awesome thing. God speaking in time, in history, people hearing it and surviving. We have a record of that. In fact, we have what God spoke, and that's why this is so important, is for the truth that of what God has spoken. Uh, that's why we take pains, and that's why this is an entire course that's going to go into some detail. You need to be reminded is what we are studying is the truth that God has spoken. Uh, we have seen today that God speaks with men, and he continues to speak through his word today. Just a humorous cartoon. Neither of these tablets comes with apps. <laughs> Not only did God speak at Mount Sinai, the cartoon is not quite accurate. There's a burning bush. But anyway, I think you get the idea there. So, just for truth itself, just for the idea that God has spoken, and we have a record of that spoken word, it's important that we understand what God said. Hermeneutics gives us the tools to clearly understand what God said. And the issue of interpretation, the the potential to misunderstand what God said. That is always present. And that's what we want to be on guard of, and that's why there are so many divisions in the church, is because the issue of a failure to interpret. So we're going to spend a lot of time on that, but let me just give you an illustration of how easy it is to come up with different meanings. You've probably seen it yourself in your own interactions. But here's an illustration. Let's read through this atheist's view of life. And we can do it quickly. The atheist would say all of the following. He says, I will live my life according to these beliefs. God does not exist. It is just foolish to think that there is a God with a cosmic plan that an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to pain and suffering in this world is a comforting thought. However, it is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Quote, unquote. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. This is the atheist. In a world with no God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. But with God, everything is fine. So they say. It is ridiculous to think I am lost and in need of saving. That's the atheist perspective. Now, I'm not going to change the words. I'm just going to read the identical same words that we just read and get a a totally different meaning. This is possible. Let's read from the bottom. The Christian view of life, I'm not going to change anything. I'm going to go back to the other slide, but notice. What is the difference? The difference is where you put the, the punctuation. And sometimes in reading the Bible, punctuation is important because you can get different meaning if you repunctuate or mispunctuate. Is that a word? I'm an engineer, so I, I don't know. Mispunctuation. Okay. 
Uh, let's read it. Same words. The Christian view. I am lost in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. Notice I'm reading the same thing. But it's totally different in meaning. The more you have, the happier you will be is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I'm deserving of hell. (laughs) The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that that an all-powerful God brings redemptions and healing to pain and suffering in the world, that there is a God with a cosmic plan, It is just foolish to think God does not exist. I live my life according to these beliefs. See that? (laughs) You've seen that before? Yeah. I never have. I was going to ask you. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Developed to to be able to read it both ways ways and come up with two different ideas. And two radically different ideas in this case. You see that? I didn't change a single word. I, I read the same slides. We just read them in not only a different order, but with different punctuation. That was the only change there. That's just an example of the importance of interpretation and how meaning, in this case, dictated by different punctuation, can give you a totally different meaning. And this is a problem when we get to Scripture. Uh, we'll find out that some of the smallest little elements in a sentence can change the entire meaning of the whole text. There's other reasons why interpretation is important. This is probably the fundamental difference in all of the different denominations, the different churches, and I've seen different estimates in terms of the number of denominations today. Anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000, which is huge. And the reason for different denominations is basically the issue of different interpretations of different passages and different emphases. So the issue is primarily hermeneutical. And by the way, the unbeliever throws this idea, well, how can I trust the Bible? There are 30,000 different interpretations. Well, we have to back up and say, well, that is true. We have, as believers, done this. But that is all the more reason why we need a standard, a well-tested, a reliable approach, a hermeneutical approach that eliminates 99% of those variant disagreeing interpretations. There are different hermeneutical approaches And from a different hermeneutical approach, you will come up with a different interpretation of any given passage. And I'll give you examples of those approaches. Uh, One of them that we'll look at towards the end of the course is the allegorical approach, which we tend to allegorize probably too much. There's also what's called the rational approach. We'll outline these different approaches, the, the main ones. 
But the, the point here is interpretation is highly dependent on how you start the approach that you take. And I mentioned already there are different cults, and they each fit into a certain hermeneutical pattern that will develop. You know, they'll knock on your door, and they'll talk to you, and they'll look at a passage, and they'll present a, an interpretation of that passage, and if you haven't thought it through, wow, that, that sounds good. But they're using a different approach, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. So, in, important just for the whole concept of truth, and that God has spoken, and we want to understand what God has said, and the danger and the problem of misinterpreting in this case, what God has said. And it's also important for growth. All of us desire to grow and to be conformed more to the image of Christ. And there's different stages. Uh, the Bible describes a stage of birth. In fact, Jesus uses the, the analogy of being born again or born from above. I think both concepts are probably in that passage. Uh, Peter describes that same concept in First uh, Peter chapter two verse one. Uh, like newborn babes crave the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow or grow up in your salvation. There's nothing wrong with being a baby Christian if you have met the Lord in more recent time. But the sad thing is we have churches filled with infant believers who have not gone past the stage of infancy. And just as it is a tragic thing, if you have a child that is retarded in some way, and you have to, and the child is a 10, 12 year old, and you still have to spoon feed them, uh, obviously they have some disability, and it's a sad thing, but in a normal person it is, it is ridiculous. <laughs> And yet, we have people that have been believers 10, 12, 15 years and are still being spoon-fed spiritually. And the growth process will not continue beyond infancy until you start getting into the work for yourself. So you need to not only, and I know all of you are committed to that or you wouldn't be here, but also encourage those that you minister to. To not only progress from birth to infancy, but beyond that to spirituality where a walk is consistent. Walking in the Spirit is a consistent thing. And eventually maturity, and there are different levels of maturity, but maturity will never happen until an individual begins to get into the Word for themselves. And there's passages, for example, the Hebrews 5 passages reprimand the Hebrew believers that are addressed in that book because they're still needing others to teach them. They haven't gone to the stage of maturity with the ability to be able to disciple and teach others. And we won't be able to do that until we can get into the Word ourselves. So it's important for truth, for interpretation, for growth, for theology. And let me just illustrate that with a Dennis the Menace cartoon here. The point I'm making with this cartoon is that everybody has a theology, even Dennis Amenis. The point is not whether or not you have a theology or not. The issue is, is your theology biblical? In the cartoon, Dennis says, I'm going to learn to fly when I grow up. 
so I won't be scared later when I become an angel. That's a theological statement. You see the theology in it? It's not good theology, but it's a theological statement. The theology is that uh, when people die, they become angels. That's not a biblical concept. Well, in the cartoon, it's a little humorous, and it's a fun thing, but it's a theological statement all the same. The point I'm making is not all theological statements, and certainly everyone has a theology, but that is certainly not a biblical theological statement. So the goal of hermeneutics is to get us into the Word so we understand the Word, and from that we can formulate a biblical theology. Theology is based on hermeneutics. We're talking about what makes hermeneutics important. Uh, We study it because of the nature of truth. God has spoken, and we want to clearly understand what God has said. It's also important because it is very easy to misinterpret Scripture, and I'll also give you a lot of things that stand in the way of good interpretation. Uh, We are, you might even say, at a little bit of a disadvantage, because a lot of communication, you might just, for example, if you're communicating with a friend, you can always ask them, well, what did you mean? Well, we're at a disadvantage in that we can't go back and ask Paul, what did you mean? So we have to have some principles to help us to understand what Paul said. So it's important for interpretation. I mentioned it's important for growth. And we can only grow to a certain extent simply by listening to sermons or reading books. And we won't grow to maturity until we get into the Word itself. And we also looked at it's important for theology, which is based on Studying the Word, theology is based on Bible study. Give you the illustration from Dennis the Menace. But to expand this idea of interpretation, let me illustrate it. The approach that we will take is generally described as the literal method of interpretation. I gave you the technical name. The technical name is grammatical, historical, contextual. The more common description is literal interpretation. And just to illustrate that, if you are consistent in your literal interpretation, if you're consistent in implying the principles that we will develop in this class, then when it deals with things at the beginning of the Bible, particularly the early chapters of Genesis, you will end up with an understanding of the early chapters as describing an earth that is relatively young in the range of thousands of years. This whole area of study is called creation science. So when you're talking about creation science, you're involving interpretation or involving hermeneutics. You will also come to the conclusion that the flood that is described by Noah is a universal flood. In other words, it's worldwide. Destroyed the whole world. And there's supporting passages to both of these all the way through the rest of Scripture. I'm going to contrast this. So this is kind of the first slide, and then the next slide will contrast it. And and then if you deal with things at the end of the Bible, we call studies dealing with the future eschatology. 
If you take a literal approach, you will end up with a premillennial eschatology. So what do you have? All of these differences of premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. The issue is not so much theology. The issue is primarily your approach. And the differences will be dictated by whether you have a literal approach or a non-literal approach. If you take a literal approach, you will be virtually forced into a premillennial position. And also relating to that, you will come up with a pre-tribulation rapture viewpoint. I'm just giving you an example here of how interpretation dictates theology. And then everything in between... You will come up with orthodox doctrine. You will come up with a, the idea, and in fact it goes the other way around, actually, an inspired, inerrant Bible dictates a literal interpretation, but then when you apply a literal interpretation, you will find that the Bible claims to be inspired and inerrant as orthodoxy. At least we believe so. It will also give you a high view of God, and it will also decide a lot of other theological areas as well. The point I'm making with the, this slide and the next is your hermeneutical approach is going to dictate the theology that you come up with. You see that? On the other end of the spectrum, there's a non-literal interpretation, and this will include other approaches as well, but in a broad sense, non-literal. When you deal with things at the beginning, you'll probably think in terms of theistic evolution because you're taking a non-literal approach. Theistic evolution is that God is the creator, but science says that evolution is true and factual. Therefore, I must conclude, if I'm a believer, that uh, God used evolution to create. That's theistic evolution. Now, will disagree with that, and I can disagree with it on a, on a scientific basis. We won't do that in this class, but I'm using this as an illustration. And a non-literal approach, I believe, also encourages a conclusion of theology that oftentimes is deviant from the Bible. And it'll affect your eschatology as well. In other words, things at the beginning and things at the end and everything in between. So I'm trying to illustrate by these two slides. So the non-literal interpretation in terms of things at the beginning, if you have a theistic evolution idea here, you're going to end up with an old earth because that's what science tends, naturalistic science tends to conclude. An earth of billions of years old, but what you're doing is you're injecting current scientific theory into your interpretation. That's non-literal. When you do that, you'll come up with an old earth. If you take a literal approach, you may have some conflicts with current science, but uh, I do a whole course on scientific apologetics as well where I deal with these issues in detail. And I maintain a consistent hermeneutic and look at science, and from that hermeneutic in terms of biblical, I shape my science based on actual scientific data, and I come up with a young Earth. And I think science supports a relatively young Earth, by the way. But if you let science dictate, you'll end up with theistic evolution, you'll end up with an old Earth, and you'll end up with a local flood. 
which I think are unbiblical viewpoints. In terms of the end of the Bible, eschatology, the difference between premillennial and and amillennial and postmillennial are hermeneutic. You have to take a non-literal approach to come up with amillennialism. So amillennialism is not just theological. Amillennialism is hermeneutical. And it requires a non-literal interpretation of an abundance of passages to be able to hold to amillennialism. Similarly, postmillennialism. Sense? The issue is hermeneutical, not just solely theological. The hermeneutics drives the theology. The hermeneutics is the foundation and dictates the theology. So the beginning is going to be different and the end is going to be different depending on the approach and you would expect the same in between and liberalism in large measure takes a non-literal approach. So you uh, we reject much of the conclusions of liberalism. In fact, we would consider liberalism deviant theology because they have a different hermeneutic. The hermeneutic dictates their liberal conclusion. And in general, liberals have a low view of God, and more of a naturalistic view of God, and that is a non-biblical view of God, and I would classify it as deviant. But what drives it is the non-liberal interpretation. So the main point I'm making here is hermeneutics is important because it drives theology. And most of the differences that we have with other people in terms of interpreting the Bible, you can boil them down oftentimes to hermeneutics. Did you, uh, just prior to going through these charts, did you equate uh, grammatical, historical, contextual method with literal interpretation? Yes. yes. Yes, literal is just a shortened way of describing it. And we'll make some distinctions when we talk about literal. That's the common way of referring to it. And when we say literal, we don't mean that there are not figures of speech in, in Scripture. There is a literal way of interpreting figures of speech, and there's a non-literal way of interpreting figures of speech. There's a grammatical, historical, contextual way of interpreting figures of speech. We'll spend probably an entire session on dealing with figurative language when we get there. This will be towards the end of the class. This brings us to kind of this chart, this pyramid, relating to how important hermeneutics is. All practice, in other words, everything that you do, your Christian life, all the things that you do as a believer is based on theology. Now, sometimes you're inconsistent with the theology that you know in your head, but when you're living out your life, you are living out what really is your theology. So the foundation to practice is theology, what you believe. Uh, Dennis Menace wants to learn how to fly because his theology dictates that uh, when he dies he's going to be an angel and he wants to be prepared to be able to fly as an angel. So flying is based on the theology and that faulty theology of Dennis the Menace, the illustration I gave you earlier. So in general, theology is the basis for practice. As I've just been saying, exegesis, which is the product of hermeneutics, is the foundation to theology. So hermeneutics 
dictates your exegesis, your exegesis, and what we mean by exegesis, just simply your Bible study, exegesis dictates your theology, and your theology will dictate your practice. So how you live is dependent on your hermeneutics. Does that affect your, your living, your life? And later on we'll talk about this bottom foundational stone uh, in another slide. Hermeneutics, also important on a very practical basis on the slide there for blessing. And you can come up with a whole list of blessings that are spelled out in Scripture in relationship to getting into God's Word. Let me just list a few of them. For example, there's a, a direct relationship to your assurance of salvation. Just and That's a blessing to, to have the confidence and to have the assurance of salvation. John, in 1 John 5.13, says, These things I have written. In other words, the book of 1 John, or at least that context, has designed. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. The text or these concepts that he's developing are to give you assurance. And there's other passages. Being strong in the faith, First John 2.14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. In other words, your strength comes from the word of God that abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So he's commending them and acknowledging the source of their strength. So the Word of God is a blessing in that it gives us it gives us that strength. It gives us power and confidence in prayer. John fifteen five. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. In other words, Scripture abiding in us. Ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. And you can go down the list. The blessing of sanctification, John seventeen seventeen. The experience of joy, John fifteen eleven. The experience of peace. Long list of things that the scriptures do for us. So it's important that we get into the word ourselves. You want to be blessed all week or you want to be blessed just Sunday afternoons? If you're dependent on simply listening to sermons, then you'll have blessing for Sunday afternoon. If you want blessings all week, it's good to get into the word on your own during the week as well. And we could give you a long list here practical things. Also on a practical basis, just the mere retention of the things that you are reading and studying goes up exponentially the more you get yourself involved in the actual study itself. Now these are old studies, but I think they're still valid. If you just hear, statistically, you will retain, this is average, average intelligence, average ability to retain about 10%. So you're sitting in church on Sunday morning, Monday morning, you're just going to retain about 10% of what the Bible teachers teach. If you hear and see, hearing and seeing, or seeing and hearing, you can retain 50%. Well, I like to use slides because now you have a visual picture of what I'm saying. So it shoots up. You're more involved. These are just statistics. This is this is not just Bible. Any lecture. University of New Mexico, sitting in in class, listening to the professor, you can expect to retain only ten percent just by listening. 
But if you're seeing, if you're reading the books, and he passes out some notes, and you're looking over those notes, you can shoot your attention up to about... The statistics also, seeing, hearing, and doing, shoots it up to about 98%. So if you really want to retain scripture, you have to get into the text for yourself. That's the doing part. In other words, you're digging yourself. Digging out truth yourself. That's why I like to not only give you the material verbally, but uh, if I could show you on a screen where you see it, and then I give you an assignment where you're actually getting into the Word, that's the practical part, then hopefully if you make this a life pattern, you will begin to incorporate Scripture in your lives on an ongoing daily basis. These are just secular statistics in terms of learning and retention of materials conveyed either by lecture or reading and actually getting into the practice. Okay, there are some prerequisites getting to the bottom of our first sheet on this introduction. These are not part of the principles, but I would say from our approach, these are important prerequisites. Number one, the prerequisite of regeneration. The scripture teaches us that a person needs to know the Lord in a personal way to really understand Scripture. The unbeliever does not have an understanding of Scripture. In fact, for the unbeliever, everything in Scripture is directing him towards the direction of regeneration. He needs to come into a personal relationship first. This is made clear in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit, that's the unbeliever, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. In other words, he does not accept what God has revealed. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. He does not have the capacity, does not have the ability, because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, it takes spiritual discernment. Regeneration is necessary. And there's other passages as well. The idea of spiritual deadness, the idea that Scripture is a spiritual revelation. Yes, it deals with the real world, but it also has a spiritual dimension. We'll get into all of that in its detail. So, a prerequisite is regeneration. A second prerequisite is illumination. The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit revealing things. That Corinthians passage indicates that as well, that we just read. 1 John 2.27, in terms of illumination, says, As for you, the anointing which you received, in other words, this is the anointing of the Spirit, the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need, you don't need a pastor, you don't need uh, me, you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing, te- anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as this has taught you, you abide in him. There is a sense in which all you need is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, and you can understand much of what God has communicated in his word. Now, there's two extremes here. There are some people who would go to the extreme of saying that uh, this is all you need. You don't need anything else. Well, there's also the balance in that God has given people with gifts to help the body of Christ, but the emphasis of that uh, 1 John 2 passage is 
basically in general, God has revealed himself in such a way that his revelation is understandable. And we can understand it only through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Now the verse in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, same context as that 2.14 in verse 11, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So if you have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God illumines and gives us insight into Scripture. Now I'm not going to talk about this a lot. We'll get into a lot of detail, but don't forget, don't get lost in the forest and not see the forest for the trees. But this is a prerequisite, even though I don't mention it every time. It doesn't mean that we're neglecting it or omitting it. We need to keep this as a prerequisite. So every time we get into the Word, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit for illumination. We're dealing with more than just a book of literature. Uh, Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope of which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now we can understand the grammar and the sentences and the thrust of what's being said, but there's a dimension that we cannot grasp apart from illumination. We're going to find out that we also need a willingness to obey. The word is not designed as an intellectual pursuit. Oftentimes you'll get bogged down in your study because there's something in the passage that God wants you to take action on, and if you're not willing to take action on, it almost seems that the Holy Spirit withholds understanding. I've experienced that. Sometimes I'll get bogged down in a passage and inevitably it'll be because the, the Lord wants me to apply that passage before I go out and teach it. And if it's not fitting together, I'm not quite understanding how it all comes together. Sometimes uh, I have to look at whether or not I'm willing to do personally what the passage is asking of me as simple disciple. So we also have the attitude, need to have the attitude of obedience to God's Word as we study it. And another pre- Requisite is a willingness to devote yourself because it's going to take some effort. It's going to take, it's not going to be an easy task. Sometimes things will fall into place, but a lot of times it'll, it'll take some research. It'll take some, some effort and some time to, to put a passage together. There, there's just no shortcuts in the process that we will lay out. If you get skilled at this, it becomes easier and you can take some shortcuts and You'll know how to maximize your time, but it takes a certain amount of, of effort. I've been doing exegesis for, like I said, probably 35, 40 years, and I can generally exegete a passage of about three, four verses, but it still takes about 12 hours to do that. When I first started, it took 25, 30 hours to do a couple of verses. So you get more efficient and you can know how to prioritize and get more skilled at doing the things that we will do. But it's going to take a willingness to get into the work. It's not going to necessarily come easy. So these are some, there may be some others, but here are four prerequisites. That completes your first sheet. We won't have time to complete the second one, but that's why there's always next week. But let me get you started on the nature of Scripture. 
you should all have that outline sheet there. Just a reminder, we're dealing with the science and art of interpretation. And I already introduced you to this chart. We talked about hermeneutics having two areas of study, the general principles, dealing with any portion of scripture, and then uh, special hermeneutics dealing with particular types of literature within the Bible. Now, these two areas will give you all of the principles that you need to do what we generally call exegesis. Exegesis is a technical word that involves the original languages. Now, this course assumes that you do not have a foundation in the original languages. Now, I know Josh and Mark have uh, first-year Greek already, and they can, they can go a little further than most. But exegesis involves the original languages as well. What I'm going to do in this course is give you the same principles, but we'll utilize only the English text. This is an introductory course. And actually, in their curriculum, they will take a, an exegesis course. We're going to go over the same stuff. You're going to get a double dose of it. But when we deal with the Greek text or Hebrew, we'll deal with those issues that involve Greek and Hebrew, or particularly Greek, a course in Greek exegesis. So, exegesis is nothing more than Bible study methods, and in a technical sense, if you throw in an understanding of the original languages, we call that exegesis. I may use the word, because the principles are the same, it's just a matter of whether you're utilizing uh, the original languages or not. Uh, so you'll be exposed to the same principles looking at it from the English text. So that's where the course will end. And then once you understand a passage, once you've exegeted a passage, now you're in a position to do exposition. And in a broad sense, when we talk about exposition, this would include one-on-one -on -one discipleship. In other words, you're communicating the word to somebody else on a one-on-one -on -one basis all the way from that one-on-one -on -one discipleship setting to preaching to 10,000 people on a Sunday morning. Some of you probably do that someday. That's exposition. We won't get into this part, but exposition is nothing more than the explanation of the work that you've done, quietness of your study. And I put exposition under hermeneutics because this is the end product and your exposition is dependent on your exegesis. Your exegesis is dependent on the general principles and the special hermeneutical principles. It's part of the pack. And if you remember on that Nicholson quote that I gave you, uh, the exegesis portion deals with understanding how the original author, or what he intended to communicate, how those original readers understood it, that's exegesis. And then in the Mickelson quote, and then being able to transmit it to a contemporary 21st century audience. Uh, that's exposition. You understand biblical hermeneutics so far? Here's the completion of that chart that we looked at in the last part of the introduction. Practice based on theology, theology based on exegesis, exegesis based on hermeneutics. You can tie them together. But exegesis and hermeneutics, does anybody know what we would fill in the uh, bottom 
pyramid of stone there? Would you expect to be in that natural revelation of truth? Mm, not quite. Not quite. Good answer, though. No, that's a little prerequisite, but um, you could put it in that box, but how about presuppositions? <laughs> <laughs> presuppositions. I was just going to say that. You're right. Yeah, I knew that. <laughs> I want to beat you in the punch, so... Sure, and I agree. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you saved me. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Enlighten us all. <laughs> okay. Your presuppositions are the unprovable assumptions that you come to. In other words, your worldview that you come to before you even start hermeneutics. In other words, your whole approach. In other words, your attitude towards what you're actually studying when you apply hermeneutics. Some of you are real close there. There's a different way of looking at Scripture, and that's why I'm going to deal with the nature of Scripture, because the nature of Scripture involves presuppositions, and you might even say the difference that we have with liberalism goes even deeper than hermeneutics, it goes down to the presuppositional level. They begin from a different presuppositional level in terms of their attitude to Scripture, and then from those presuppositions on Scripture, now they build a hermeneutical system. And then that hermeneutical system dictates their exegesis and theology. You see that? Because that, because that could be um, theology of I mean, based on this little pyramid. Right. Based on your, right. Yeah. If I mean, you have a presupposition yeah. of atheism, yeah. God that's going to that's going to dictate everything else. Exactly. Okay. Because I was looking at from a Christian perspective. Broader, yeah. broader. Exactly. Yeah. The liberal presupposes the nature of Scripture differently than the way that we approach and see Scripture. His view of Scripture is that Scripture is more just another book, not too much different than others, maybe more ancient, uh, maybe having greater variety of authors, but not too much different than a Charles Dickens or a Agatha Christie or whatever. Uh, that is a fundamental different approach and a different presupposition than our presupposition. So we begin with what is the nature of Scripture because we are going to build upon that, and that's why the next thing on our outline here is the nature of Scripture. And you have to understand that in order uh, to build on that a proper hermeneutic. So that's what we're going to do mainly next week. We're, we're pretty well done with class. Do you have a question again? Or a comment? Yeah. Um, well, that, uh, that, you know, that reveals, at least in part, um, the futility of arguing theology uh, because uh, you know, it really starts with presuppositions. It also reveals the, the necessity of the Spirit to change people's lives. Yes. And I think of uh, one of my lifelong friends, a uh, very devout uh, Catholic uh, lawyer, knows how to argue. He and I Jody and I go to their house, and, and Margaret and my wife Jody, they'd end up in a different room. <laughs> and Bob and I would be 
you know, we'd be arguing for two, three hours. We were always up arguing in that field of theology, really. Uh, and his presuppositions are totally different. Totally different. different. You know, yeah. So somehow, uh, a lore on a spiritual level drive us to change somebody to have to start right. in a different place. Exactly. Yeah. And, and hopefully this just, this just explains, as you just, uh, explain that situation, the importance of starting, uh, starting points. So there's even under hermeneutics, there is the presuppositional level as well, that you may need to take into account. And different hermeneutical systems start with different presuppositions. It's not that they just go about and say, well, I don't like that hermeneutic, I'm going to try a different hermeneutic. Uh, the hermeneutic comes from an underlying presupposition, assumption as to what is the nature of the Bible. And what we will deal with is the nature of Scripture, and we'll start out next week with the uniqueness of This is great. Jim, you want to close for us today? Well, Father, it's, uh, it's a great privilege to have this opportunity develop our minds so that uh, we are more useful in your hand uh, to understand the love letter that you sent to us. Uh, so help us to, uh, to use these tools well and help us learn to be skilled at uh, communicating the truth uh, that you have for us with those that uh, you bring into our lives. Amen.